video is so cool. I love it. That was awesome. Hey, uh, good morning. My name is Joe Scavato. If I haven't met you before, it's been a while since I've been here at the North Aurora campus. Always love being here and uh, appreciate the time to worship together. Uh, let's pray together as we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, thanks for bringing us here today. We do declare that, that you are good. You're good to us. You've been good to us. You will continue to be. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Would you speak to us now? Would you reveal your goodness even further and your grace and your mercy? We ask this in your name. Amen. Years ago, a a nationwide poll was taken asking people about the most meaningful words that a person could say to them. About the phrases that, upon hearing them from a family member or a friend or or someone important in their life, brought them the most joy or satisfaction or fulfillment. They were doing this, trying to figure out the three most significant phrases that a person could hear. Actually, if you think you know what it is, go ahead and just shout it out if you have any guesses. The three most important or most significant things a person could say to you. I love you. That was on there. Thank you, proud of you. Thanks, Bruce. Oh, no, that was... <laughs> Any other guesses? I, I forgive you. Jesus loves you, glad you're here. So number one, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. Number three, dinner's ready. <laughs> Don't you love that? Now, if it were me, I might switch the order a little bit. Number three might be number one. Uh, I can only assume number four was you were right and I was wrong. Uh, or perhaps these people were less petty than I am. But there's something about that, isn't there? I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. That, that speaks to us. That speaks to the deepest desires, not just of our body, but of our souls and our hearts. In fact, many people have pointed out that these three phrases, I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready, is in many ways the message and the ministry of Jesus. I love you to the point of becoming one of you. I forgive you, and I will prove it on the cross. Dinner's ready. Would you come sit with me? Would you join me? Would you be nourished by my words? This is the message of Jesus that we'll be hearing today as we begin this new series you just saw that we're calling Unrecognized King. The the idea behind the series is that when you study the four biographies of Jesus, what we call the four Gospels, a few things become clear to us. First, that Jesus did not come to this earth simply to be a good teacher or simply to heal people or simply to model a life of love and kindness. He came to this earth to be our king and to usher in a new kind of kingdom. Matthew 4 tells us that this is one of the defining features of Jesus' preaching, that his message was to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The second thing, though, that you notice over and over when Jesus shows up and ushers in this kingdom is that the people that followed him and the people that hated him and even the people that loved him did not recognize the kind of king that he came to be. But as Jesus revealed his identity and his purpose and his mission, one of the great tragedies of his story is just how many people missed out on the life that he invited them into. That he was and still is today for many an unrecognized king. 
So each week, we're going to look at one of these types of stories. And what our hope is in this series, which will take us all the way through Easter Sunday, is to examine the king, to examine Jesus showing up and offering love and forgiveness in a seat at the table, to examine the responses of the crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders of his day, and to examine ourselves. And to ask ourselves if we are the kind of people that are able to recognize the presence of the king in our own lives. So today, that's where we're heading. We're going to start with one of the first of these stories in John chapter 6. If you have a Bible or the Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn with me there because we'll be spending most of our time together uh, in that text. What we're going to see in the story is kind of the flow of, of the people's hunger, the king's offer, and then a divided response. We'll start with the people's hunger. John 6, starting in verse 25, it says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Back when we were living in Indiana, one of our, the go-to uh, date night spots for my wife and I was a place called Texas Roadhouse. Anybody been to Texas Roadhouse? It's uh, pretty awesome. If you haven't been, uh, it looks a little bit like this. I think I have a picture with me, maybe. Um, maybe. Nope. It looks, it's blank. It's, there's nothing there. <laughs> I made it up in my mind. No, it's, uh, it's kind of this like super casual, like country style uh, steakhouse. There it is. Hi, Texas Roadhouse. Uh, and uh, you walk in. It's kind of weird because you walk in and they're just peanut shells like all over the floor. They have like this just giant barrel of peanuts in the corner that you can just take from. And it's fun because my wife is allergic to peanuts. Um, so it's like dinner with danger on the side. It's very, <laughs> it's very exciting. But the main reason that we would go to Texas Roadhouse are their dinner rolls. Uh, I brought a picture of those as well, I believe. Oh, look at those. Don't you want to just stare at those for like 20 minutes? Uh, if you have not been to Texas Roadhouse, you have to go just for these rolls. I don't know how to describe them other than they are so good that I want to write poetry about them. That is how good they are. Uh, and they, it, we got to the point where they would come out and they would give us a basket. And as they were giving us the first basket, we would ask for another because we knew we would need more. Uh, and sometimes we get to that point where there would be like one left. And as the husband, I know what I'm supposed to do, which is to share it. But I was like, nope, every person for themselves, you can wait. <laughs> and then what would happen is that the actual food that we ordered would show up and we were not hungry. It was like, just box it up, give us more rolls, we'll be good to go. But this is the type of hunger that our story is about. 
as we see this crowd of people flocking to Jesus looking for bread. Quickly, a few pieces of context as we look at this conversation first. Uh, Just before this text that we read, Jesus has just performed two of his most famous miracles throughout his ministry. He has just fed the 5,000, this incredible act of provision of bread and fish for 5,000 men plus thousands more women and children. And then immediately after, he walks on water. He calms the seas and his disciples' fears. And so it's important that we see this, that for any first century Jewish person that was experiencing this or that was reading John's account of what happened, immediately what would have come to mind for them was the Exodus. And more specifically, Moses. Moses, who God empowered to split the Red Sea in their escape from the Egyptians. Moses, who led the people through the desert where God provided bread, manna from heaven every morning incredible act of provision. That's so what happens right before this text that I read, is that the people are starting to figure out that there's something about this Jesus, something about him worth following, something about him that has life. In fact, we read this in John 6, verse uh, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So they're saying this because Jesus is literally reliving the story of Moses. He's showing his power over the water. He's showing his ability to provide, bringing bread in a miraculous way to fill their needs. And so what they do is they track him down. They chase after him. And look again at his words to them in verse 26. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is the second piece of context that we need to understand, that according to John, there is a difference between a sign and a miracle. And Jesus performed signs. We saw it in verse 14 when the people saw the sign. Just now in verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, And then John ends his gospel in John chapter 20 with kind of a summary statement of why he wrote this entire book. He says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John Piper is a uh, pastor and an author, and he, he described a sign this way. He said to picture the glory of God Uh, as kind of this bright, dazzling light that you cannot help but be in awe of. You ever, like, stare at a campfire for, like, an hour and not get bored of looking at it? Picture that times a million. And this incredible light, this glory of God. And he said that when Jesus does something like feeding the 5,000, when he performs something miraculous, picture the glory of God coming down. It's like this beam of light coming down and hitting the earth in this specific moment in time. And so this beam comes down, and it's this intersection of heaven and earth. And something incredible happens. Bread is multiplied and transformed, and and Jesus does something that cannot be explained. 
But what he's saying is that this is a sign. This is meant to point you somewhere greater and somewhere else. The purpose of the sign is not so that you look at this specific moment, but that you trace the beam back to the glory. And so Jesus, when he does things like feeding thousands of people with one boy's lunch, and when he heals the sick, and when he raises the dead, He's not just doing that because he's a nice guy who loves people. He does, but he's doing it that we would trace the beam and be in awe of the glory. He's doing it to show us something about who he is and the power of God. And so this is Jesus' point in this conversation, that these people have done the exact right thing. They have chased Jesus down. They have sought him out. And yet they have missed the point entirely. Because they are more interested in the power of God than the person of God. They don't care who Jesus is as long as he keeps feeding them. And so this is the point that the provision of God that we see so clearly in this story and throughout the Bible and in our own lives is a sign of something greater. Any comfort that we have, any security, even the things that we take for granted. There's a reason that these people chased Jesus down for a loaf of bread. They were marked by poverty and oppression by the Romans. Everything that we have is meant to point us towards a greater reality. To remind us of the goodness and the glory of God. And what happens often in our Christian circles today is that we have the language for this. We say things like, God has blessed me so much. He's blessed me with this home. Blessed me with this job. He's given me this family that I love so much. And all of that is true. But oftentimes what happens is that we don't fully think through what it is we're saying. God has blessed you with your home, but not just so that you have a place to stay tonight. To remind you that in the Father's house there are many rooms and Jesus is preparing a place for you right now. God did bless you with your job, but not just to do your work, to do his work, to build his kingdom. God blessed you with your kids or your grandkids or your family or your friends, your community, to show you something about the perfect love of your heavenly Father. And this is why this matters, because this is one of the great temptations for us living in 21st century suburban America, where we might be tempted to follow the crowd and to trust and build our lives and put our hope on the gifts rather than on our relationship with the giver. It's possible to be so filled so consumed with what this world can offer with the comforts and the entertainment and the distractions and the pleasures that we fill ourselves up on bread and we lose our appetite for the actual meal. And we find when we have opportunity to experience the glory and the presence of Christ, we aren't even hungry anymore. Paul talks about this in Colossians uh, chapter 3. He says, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. So Jesus is saying, more than you seek my blessings and more than you seek my power, would you just seek me? My presence, my glory. This is what I've come to give you. 
That brings us to the king's offer. We'll pick up our story again in verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm curious, have you ever uh, invited someone to, to do something or be a part of something that you knew would be good for them or that you knew they would enjoy, but they just refused to take you up on it? Parents, maybe you can relate to that. My uh, son is two years old, and he recently decided that he is done taking baths for the rest of his life. Um, And it's super fun. Uh, The the other day, actually, this happened where as soon as he heard the water turn on, he tried to hide in my house, just screaming no. He's like, no, 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 just right into my eardrum as I drop him in the tub. And the frustrating thing is that uh, not only do I know that baths are good for him, but I know that he likes them. Like, I know it. He has his bath toys and bubbles, and he likes just splashing around. Like, the, the only thing that he dislikes more than having to take a bath is when I take him out of the bath. So bath time in the Scavato house begins and ends with agony. He's very poetic in that way. I appreciate that. And so I know this, but every time I ask if he's ready for a bath, if, I, if he wants to experience being made clean, if he wants to experience the joy that is ahead of him, the answer is no. And I wonder if this is the frustration that Jesus feels in this moment. Look again at verse 35. He looks at the crowds and he tells them, I am the bread of life. And in speaking this, is declaring two things to be true. First, he's declaring his identity. This is the first of what scholars call the great I am statements. Seven times in John's gospel, we see Jesus use this phrase, I am, and then describe himself in a different way. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And so again, upon hearing that phrase, what would have come to mind for the Jewish people that he was speaking to would have been the Exodus again. And again, uh, we see this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. This is something that they would have memorized to their core. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus, in co-opting this phrase for himself, is telling us something about his identity. Saying, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a healer. I'm not just a good person who does good things. But rather that he is the son of God, human and divine. So he declares his identity. And then second, he declares his purpose. That he did not come just to give bread, but to be bread. That he is the true provider, the fulfillment of what God did through Moses, that he has come not to give temporary but eternal life. Jesus recognizes something to be true, not just of these people, but of you and of me. That deep down, somewhere within us, there is a desire and a hunger 
and a longing that the greatest meal and the finest things and the highest experiences in this world cannot satisfy. That somewhere within us, we long to experience peace in an anxious world. That deep down, our desire is to belong, to be accepted, to be fully known and loved unconditionally. That somewhere within us, we yearn for a greater purpose, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to hope, hope for the future, hope for restoration, hope for healing of brokenness. That something within us cries out when we see or experience injustice that it should not be this way. Jesus is saying that there is a hunger that you have, and it is not just of your body, it is of your soul. And you can summon all the self-discipline, you can experience all the world's pleasures, you can make all the money in the world, and you will not be satisfied. There's a quote that I love uh, from Jim Carrey, who's one of the most famous actors in the world. It speaks to this idea uh, he says, I think everybody should get all the money they want and all the fame they want and do everything they ever wanted so they can see that attaining things they want is not the answer. Jesus is saying, this is the hunger that I have come to satisfy. This is the bread that I offer, the life that I give, the sustenance that I provide, not just a physical meal, but a spiritual reality. Life to the full. A life with peace, purpose, love, and hope baked into its very DNA. This is the offer that the king gives to us. This is why uh, throughout the history of the church, fasting has been a really important part of people's uh, spiritual journey. If fasting is uh, new to you, or maybe it's been a while since you've done it, uh, it's simply uh, a uh, way to pray with your body. It's, it's abstaining from something, typically food, to remind you of your true dependence and your true hunger that you have, not just of your body, but of your soul. And so perhaps this could be a practice for you to try uh, this week. The purpose of it is not just to not do something, but to focus your attention on something greater, to remind yourself of your true need, to say with your whole self that my true provision comes from God and he feeds not just my body, but my soul. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 4. He says that I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is what fasting does. It reminds me of the food I need the most. Now, fasting isn't for everyone. Uh, I'm not going to tell my wife, who's 34 weeks pregnant, to fast for her safety and for my own. Um, <laughs> and depending on your situation, it may not be for you, and that's okay. But this is the beauty of fasting, is that it reminds us of something that is so easy to forget in our modern world. That I am actually more frail, fragile, independent than I would like to admit. And that is a good thing. And it is good for me to be reminded of that. For some of us, even going without one meal or several meals will serve for us as this picture of how much we need God. That as our body feels the effects of a lack of nutrition, not to the point of something dangerous happening, 
I'm simply reminded that just as my body needs food, my soul needs daily and consistent time to be nourished by the presence of God, not just once a week, but every single day. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives, to be filled with the bread of life in his word, in prayer, through fasting and solitude and community and serving and all of the disciplines that are available. He invites us to experience those three simple phrases. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. Last thing I want to show you today is a divided response. Uh, I just want to point out just a few of the different responses upon hearing these words that we see from the crowd that day. We'll pick it up in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, if we had time uh, to read through all 30 verses left in this chapter, uh, what we would see is Jesus kind of continue to unpack this teaching and this idea that he is the bread of life, the source of life, that life comes from him. And he talks about this uh, idea and uses this language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood and that being the source of life. And for us, we can see that through the lens of the communion table, that when we take communion, uh, we remember Jesus giving up his life for ours. I heard a pastor put it this way, that Jesus is the only bread that is willing to break for you. And of course, what he's saying to us makes sense. But imagine being one of the people in the crowd that day and having none of that context and someone coming to you and saying, if you want to live, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That'd be pretty weird. It makes sense that they grumbled and questioned and left, doesn't it? This is not the type of preaching they teach you in seminary. Jesus must have known that this was going to be the end result. Look with me, though, to the last few verses that we'll look at today. We'll pick it up again in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, the twelve disciples, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Don't you love that response from Peter, who doesn't always get it right, but here he is just so spot on. Jesus, what you have just said makes no sense at all, and it's super confusing. But where else would we go? Who can do what you have done? Who offers provision, not just for our bodies, but for our souls? Who offers belonging and purpose and hope and peace like you do? Why would we leave you? We have nowhere else to be. And I love that because this is a picture of faith. This is what faith does. Part of faith is allowing hard news to be good news. Faith allows hard news to be good news. The crowds failed to capture this idea. They liked the Jesus that they thought that they had. 
They love Jesus, the manna giver, the new Moses, the prophet, the king. John tells us that, that after he feeds the 5,000s, Jesus literally had to escape because they were going to force him to be king. That's the Jesus they wanted. They wanted Jesus the Savior, but not the Lord. And this is the temptation that we must recognize in our own hearts as well. We must recognize that the good news of Jesus is not just the parts of the message that we like. And not just the ones that are comfortable for us. I like the Jesus that forgives me. That offers second chances. That gives me grace. I don't know how I feel about it when he does that to my enemies. I like the Jesus that cares for all the nations, but I don't know about his commands to care for them myself. I like the Jesus that offers unconditional love, but I don't know about his call to die to myself and pick up my cross and surrender every single day. This is our hope for this series as we look at this unrecognized king, as we consider the works and the words of Jesus throughout his ministry, as we observe the reactions from the crowds, that we would look at our own hearts as well. That we would ask ourselves, are we open to hear not just from the Jesus that we want, but the one that has revealed himself as the only way, truth, and life? Our hope is that as a church that the hard news and the difficult teachings of Jesus would still be good news to us. And that the words of Peter would be echoed in our own hearts that, that Jesus, not everything you say is easy and we don't always understand, but where else would we go? Who else can do what you have done? And so, Father, that is our prayer today. That we would be people that are open to hearing from your word, that are quick to recognize your spirit, that rely on you each and every day to provide exactly what we need. Lord, we praise you that we can look back and see your faithfulness over and over again. That the God who gave manna in the desert is the same one that we have. you care deeply, not just about our bodies, but about our souls. And so, Father, help us to rely on you in a new way in this moment. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us for worship today. It really, it's our deepest hope as a church that we would encounter the one that Pastor Joe talked about, the one who's the bread of life, who has broken himself for us. So I just invite you, if there's any way in which you are struggling right now, you need prayer, you need encouragement, that is what the church is for. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're sitting here wondering, you know, I would love to get to know this Jesus, I want to know more about this, we're excited about that too, please don't leave without chatting to either Pastor Joe or myself or any of our uh, team around, we'd love to chat with you about that. Uh, as we close, just want to remind you of a couple of things, one, our newcomer lunch is uh, starting just following the service in the rooms at the back of the lobby, I would love for you to join us for that if you're new within the last few months. Uh, and learn a little bit more about us. And then a reminder as well to sign up for our Passover experience. We've got info on that in the lobby. But let me close just by reading these words that Pastor Joe shared with us just a moment ago from John 6. The words of Peter. When Jesus asked him, do you want to go as well? Answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Go now in the name of the one who is the bread of life, broken for you, Jesus Christ. Amen.